Welcome. It's Luke from TRP Podcast. Our topic today is religious liberty versus public health vaccine mandates and a little bit into qualified immunity. If you don't know what that is, you're going to find out today on The Republican Professor. We have a wonderful guest. Today's guest is Judge Ho, circuit judge on the Fifth Circuit. He is a, he was appointed by President Trump to the federal bench and was confirmed by a Republican Senate. And Judge Ho joins us today through his judicial writing. His partial concurrence and his partial dissent in Brett Horvath versus City of Leander, Texas. And this is in the 946th volume of the Federal Reporter, starting at page 787 for the decision, 2020. James Dennis wrote the majority opinion. Higginbotham was also on the three-judge panel, and Ho writes the dissent. So let me tell you a little bit about the case. The case involved a firefighter who was also, as it turns out, an ordained Baptist minister and also a small business owner, had a, a construction company on the side while he was uh, on his off days for firefighting. And he objected to a vaccination requirement that was handed down um, several times. He received exemptions, religious exemptions, for uh, some of them. The latest one, the, the subject of this case, started in 2016. The city mandated, I'm reading from the majority opinion here, the city mandated that all personnel receive a Tdap vaccination, which immunizes from tetanus, diphtheria, and pertussis, or whooping cough. On January 14th and on uh, January 20th, Horvath, the plaintiff, sought an exemption from the directive on religious grounds. Okay? Um, and so this case is about that. What happened? And the issues that come up. Now, I'm going to just start with Judge Ho here. And this is on page... Hmm. My copy is not obvious. I wish it was more obvious. One moment while I take a drink of water. We're on page 794. Judge Ho. Civil rights leaders and scholars have derided Employment Division versus Smith as the Dred Scott of the First Amendment law. At least 10 members of the Supreme Court have criticized Smith. It is widely panned as contrary to the Free Exercise Clause and our founders' belief in religion 
as a cornerstone of civil society. Uh, pause, pause right here and give you a little bit of background on Employment Division versus Smith. It was a 1990 case at the universe, uh, United States Supreme Court. Uh, the decision was written by Scalia. Probably the worst decision that he ever wrote. Um, there's not a lot of competition for that, thankfully, with Scalia. Um, and it had to do with uh, some Indians that had ingested some narcotics, and they claimed it was a part of a religious ceremony. They um, wanted to get unemployment benefits, and that fact was standing in the way of them getting unemployment benefits. Um, so the question was, could they still get it and ingest narcotics as a part of a religious exercise? Um, so that's a little bit of a background there. Uh, the decision had overturned a standard of review and uh, free exercise cases that had been uh, in place for at least a couple of decades and that people had gotten used to and seemed to think was somewhat appropriate, at least more appropriate than the way that Scalia handled it. Um, and it generated a lot of criticism, um, including from the Congress and including from the president, who was uh, Bill Clinton at the time. Okay, so there's a little bit of background there, so you know a little bit about what I mean by Smith, what, what Judge Ho means by Smith. Okay, Judge Ho, again, starting at page 795. Smith is nevertheless binding precedent, but we should not apply it where it does not belong. Under Smith, government may regulate religious activity without having to satisfy strict scrutiny, so long as the regulation is a neutral law of general applicability. That rule does not apply, however, where government grants exemptions to some, but not to others. Religious liberty deserves better than that, even under Smith. Okay, here's me again. Smith refused to grant an exemption to the Indians, claiming it was a law of neutral applicability, the law against receiving unemployment benefits uh, <clears throat> as an exception to the general applicable law against ingesting narcotics. Okay. So what Judge Ho is saying here is that as a lower court, he's on the Fifth Circuit, he has to respect binding precedent from the Supreme Court. There's one Supreme Court. Okay, there's not, uh, so the word supreme has meaning. Um, that means that the lower court is not supreme. <laughs> there's only one of them. That's in Article 3. Um, so this is an ex a case about exemptions. Will this firefighter, Brett Horvath, 
who's also a Baptist minister and claims a religious exemption and has gotten religious exemptions from vaccinations in the past. Will he get one for this? And the court here says no. The court says no, no exemption for you. Um, it's a little bit more complicated than that, as we're going to get into, because there is a requirement under the law that they would offer a an accommodation. And so we got to get into what an accommodation is. <laughs> and um, so we're going to continue with Judge Ho here. 795. Based on the record in this case, it is far from clear that the city's policy is a neutral law of general applicability. That's the key wording from Smith that would enable the court to refuse to grant an exemption. There are factual disputes that make summary judgment inappropriate. I would accordingly vacate the judgment as to the free exercise claim against the city and remand for further proceedings. But I would affirm the judgment as to the free exercise claim against the fire chief because the doctrine of qualified immunity bars that claim. Under that doctrine, a plaintiff cannot recover against a public official unless one, the official violated the plaintiff's rights, and two, the law is clearly established at the time of the violation. In other words, the, the right is clearly established. Clearly established is in quotations at the time. I would welcome a principled reevaluation of our precedents under both prongs. So here, Judge Ho, I like this. He's going after the issue of qualified immunity. He's he can't do much as a lower court judge, but he 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 feels like there's uh, a, a finger hold to challenge those two prongs that are required for uh, um, that are required for a plaintiff to prevail. Uh, against a claim of qualified immunity. Now, qualified immunity basically means that the fire chief fired him, right? Fire chief fired him, and he's immune from being sued because in a qualified way, not an absolute way, uh, in, in, the, in the way that matters, because... The, the claim is that um, the fire chief was just doing his job and that Horvath here uh, did not have a clearly established right to an exemption, just a blanket exemption from this particular vaccine at the time he was uh, fired for not taking the uh accommodation that was offered to him, which he didn't think was reasonable. Um, so 
I like this descent because I I want to have a little bit deeper consideration of qualified immunity as well. Maybe a lot. Uh, he cites his own case, Cole versus Carson, which is an en banc dissent that he wrote, uh, uh, dissenting. I'm going to get into that a little bit later at some point. Okay. The second prong has been widely criticized and for good reason. That's the clearly established prong. Neither the text nor the original understanding of 42 U.S. Code Section 1983 supports the clearly established requirement. And there he's citing Wilson versus City of Southlake. Um, Ho, Judge Ho dissenting, or sorry, concurring. <laughs> uh, in addition, courts too often misuse the first prong, finding constitutional violations where none exist as an original matter. In some, we grant immunity when we should deny, and we deny immunity when we should grant. That sounds like a, a criticism to me of, of precedent, which I'm all for. If you want to criticize precedent for being uh, somehow out of place with the text and or the original understanding of the statute, that sounds great. You got to let that go wide open, especially when you're talking about stuff like bodily autonomy, the right over your own body uh, to your own health care. <laughs> against public requirements. Now, think about public health for a sec versus private health. The reason they call it public health is because they think by calling it that, it um, excuses an intrusion into your private space. The public takes precedent over your private health. That's why they call it public health. They call it public health because they they have a des only in case they have a desire to to intrude upon your privacy. That's the whole point of calling it public health. So, given that that's the the motif of public health, but at least in name, the question is is how much can you stuff into the pr public health envelope? And, and squeeze under the door of your privacy and, and, and violate your privacy, violate your autonomy. Autonomy, recall, comes from two Greek words, autos and nomos. And uh, autos just means one's own, um, on one's own, and nomos means law. Um, like Deuteronomy, that's the same word, the second reading of the law. Uh, automobile, you know, the, the word, you know, going on its own um, without horses. <laughs> Doesn't really go on its own. It needs people, but you know what I mean? It means without horses. It appears to be going on its own, uh, phenomenologically. So autonomy would be that you're the the lawmaker with regard to your own privacy. Now that's always been 
that's always stopped where you affect the public, right? Where you might hurt people. And so the public public health claims power to prevent your privacy from hurting other people. And that's why you have the vaccine mandate. That's why you have this, um, this issue that will never go away. It's just endemic to the whole thing, the whole system we have where, you know, you, if you're worried about a vaccine injury, for example, or polluting the temple of the Holy spirit, as Brett Horvath might say, this firefighter, um, because our bodies are the temple of the Holy spirit. Right. And he doesn't want that junk in his body. Um, well, um, you know, uh, they're going to argue that as a, as a first responder who comes upon uh, compromised people, uh, they're they're vulnerable and they they they're especially vulnerable to dangerous diseases uh, that they encounter from people trying to help them up close and personal, and so. Uh, how do you respect religion, which you're supposed to do, you have to do because of the constitution. And at the same time, uh, respect someone's, uh, being able to do their job, uh, without compromising their, their religion and protecting the people that they're serving and according to policy. All right. Um, be that as it may, here's Judge Ho again. I'm duty bound to faithfully apply established qualified immunity precedents, just as I am duty bound to faithfully follow Smith. I concur in the judgment in part and dissent in part. So he's concurring that the ju the uh, fire chief is off the hook for firing, although he's only doing that because he's a lower court judge, but he thinks there actually really is a problem with that. There's a problem that needs to be resolved. There's deeper issues. We're going to come back to that in another time because I'm I'm interested in that. I'm going to chase that down. Now he's gonna he's going to dissent though, as far as the summary judgment because he thinks that cuts off the production of a fax that and and testimony that would uncover that even under smith which has all sorts of problems <laughs> that that Brett Horvath still could possibly prevail here and maybe should prevail and you're cutting it off and that's not right so at the time of the founding on 795 at the time of the founding it's only a few pages so just bear with me here i think it only goes to page 800 something and these are these have footnotes so at the time of the founding every state except connecticut provided constitutional protection for religious freedom but the degree of protection seemed to vary eight states delaware massachusetts new hampshire new jersey new york North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and South Carolina 
protected the right to, quote, worship, often accompanied by language specifically protecting worship according to the dictates of one's, quote, unquote, conscience. By contrast, the constitutions of Georgia, always on my mind, Georgia, Maryland, Rahode Island, and Virginia provided more robust coverage by protecting, quote, the free exercise of religion. The language later adopted in the First Amendment. As Judge McConnell articulated in his influential work on the subject, criticizing Smith, understanding the distinction between, quote, worship and conscience, unquote, as opposed to, quote, free exercise, unquote, is critical. Let's reflect on those terms. Does it make a difference that the First Amendment does not say just worship, the freedom to worship, or freedom of conscience, and instead says free exercise of religion? Does it make a difference? Is free exercise wider as a concept than just worship, which sounds narrow? Judge Ho again. The word worship usually signifies the rituals or ceremonial acts of religion, such as the administration of sacraments or the singing of hymns, and thus would indicate a more restrictive scope for the free exercise provisions. And conscience referred to private thoughts, opinions, and beliefs. For example, Johnson treated conscience as synonymous with knowledge, real sentiment, veracity, private thoughts, scruple, difficulty, and reason, reasonableness. Johnson was a, a, a dictionary, and I think it was 1805, maybe. By contrast, the word exercise strongly connoted action. Johnson defined exercise as practice, outward performance, actual application of anything, task, that which one is appointed to perform, or an act of worship, whether public or private. Similarly, Noah Webster's American Dictionary defined exercise as employment. And James Buchanan's 1757 Dictionary, not the president, defined exercise as to use or practice. The fuller scope of exercise, in contrast to worship and conscience, indicates that at the time of the founding, the public would have understood the right to free exercise as uh, to extend beyond mere ritual and private belief to cover an, any action motivated by faith. Taking a drink of water. Any action motivated by faith. Consistent with that conclusion, 
Congress amended the draft language that later became the First Amendment, replacing the original phrase rights of conscience with the free exercise of religion. It would be difficult on this evidence to conclude that the framers of the free exercise clause intended it to be confined to acts of worship. Now, he's quoting, sometimes he's quoting McConnell, who's a a uh, federal judge at one point and is a law professor, famous law professor specializing in the First Amendment. He's quoting there, FYI, I'm not always going to say who he's quoting. You know the drill after all these years of listening to me. The founders understood that the right to free exercise would require more than simple neutrality toward religion. Rather, when it's by the way, it's it, it's interesting to wonder: is simple neutrality even possible? As far as that this goes, it's something for you to think about. You can see where this is going, right? If free exercise means private belief that motivates action and, and it covers the action motivated by faith. Well, what if that action is hurtful to other people? Do, do other people in that instance lose their rights because the action that hurts them was motivated by religion and we protect religion, religious exercise? See, the public health people are going to say, if you re, if you reject a vaccine for religious reasons, you're going to hurt other people. But then what could possibly go wrong here? Because if you really do cl claim to protect religion, like really free exercise, what exactly are you protecting? Is it this? As... My teacher, Michael Yulman, used to say, who taught the First Amendment religion courses at Claremont, PhD level, and was attorney to President Reagan, or this. And those listening, my hands are close together now. This or this? Now they're far apart. Where do you draw the line? Does the text help? Is it a guide? How so? If so, how so? If not, why not? Judge Ho is saying that we have some help here from history and tradition and the text. The founders understood that the right to free exercise would require more than simply neutrality. I think he means simple neutrality. Maybe simply works. Okay, simply neutrality toward religion. Rather, when government regulation and religious activity conflict, the right to free exercise would require that the government accommodate the religious practice rather than the reverse. As James Madison later wrote, 
the right to religious exercise should prevail over government regulation, quote, in every case where it does not trespass on the private rights or the public peace, unquote. Does that help? The public health people are going to say, you're trespassing on the public peace, Horvath, by not getting that stuff injected into you. And Horvath is saying, this is the temple of the Holy Spirit. You don't have a right to make me have that stuff in there. I still have a right to do my job. All right. Or at least a reasonable accommodation, where reasonable means we can have a reasonable conversation. It's not just, not just you saying this is reasonable and take it or leave it, buddy, which is what they did. They just announced it was reasonable. Without and and what Ho is saying is well we'll we'll get to it he he talks about that. After all, a person who is barred from engaging in religiously motivated conduct is barred from freely exercising his religion. That person is barred from freely exercising his religion, regardless of whether the law prohibits the conduct only when engaged in for religious reasons only by members of their religion or by all persons. That's a quote from Smith O'Connor. As Justice O'Connor observed, limiting the free exercise clause to a neutrality principle akin to equal protection would impoverish religious liberty. If the First Amendment is to have any vitality, it ought not to be construed to cover only the extreme and hypothetical situation in which a state directly targets a religious practice. That would regulate a serious, sorry, relegate a serious First Amendment value to the barest level of minimum scrutiny that the equal protection already provides, unquote. It would be of little solace to the person of faith that a non-believer might be equally inconvenienced, for it is a person of faith whose faith is uniquely burdened. The non-believer, by definition, suffers no such crisis of conscience. This recalls Anatoly France's mordant remark about the majestic quality of the law which prohibits the wealthy as well as the poor from sleeping under bridges, from begging in the streets, and from stealing bread. Not surprisingly, then, around the time of the drafting of the Bill of Rights, it was generally accepted that the right to free exercise required, where possible, accommodation of religious practice. Page 797 now. States provided religious exemptions in various areas during the founding era. Both Quakers and Jews conscientiously refused to take oaths when they call, they were called to testify in court. Quakers because they believed that the Bible forbade the taking of oaths. And Jews because they did not want to take oaths premised on, quote, the faith of a Christian, unquote. 
So the colonies excused them from that obligation and allowed them to testify by affirmation instead of by oath. McConnell, that's McConnell, uh, Quakers were similarly excused from mandatory min military service. Drink of water due to their religious objections on bearing arms. Consistent with the founders' understanding of free exercise, the Supreme Court held in a series of cases that government may not regulate in a manner that burdens rel religious activity unless the regulation is narrowly tailored to further a compelling government interest. For example, in Sherbert versus Verner, which is 1963, South Carolina denied a Seventh-day Adventist unemployment compensation because of her refusal to work on Saturdays, her Sabbath. The court found that the den denial clearly imposed a burden on the free exercise of the appellant's religion. It held that a colorable state interest was insufficient to justify the burden and granted relief on the grounds that the state failed to provide a compelling interest. Uh, she got her unemployment benefits, is what that's saying. Incidentally, that was uh, the precedent up until Smith. Okay, in Wisconsin versus Yoder, 1972, Amish parents challenged a state law requiring children to attend school until the age of 16. The parents had a firm and sincere religious objection to higher education. Wisconsin responded that its interest in universal compulsory formal secondary education to age 16 is so great that it is paramount to the parents' undisputed claims. Notably, the court acknowledged the general applicability of the state's compulsory school attendance statutes. It nevertheless required the state to grant a religious exemption in the absence of a compelling government interest. There are areas of conduct protected by the free exercise clause of the First Amendment and thus beyond the power of the state to control, even under regulations of general applicability. But the court dramatically altered its course in Smith, announcing an exception to the Sherbert and Yoder rule that the parties had not even requested, let alone briefed. Now, this is Judge Ho getting in there. This is his uppercut here in this dissent. The parties had not even requested this exemption, exception to Sherbert and Yoder. Smith establishes a substantial exception to the strict Sherbert and Yoder standard. After Smith, remember that's the Indian Narcotics Unemployment Benefits one in 1990, Scalia. 
After Smith, the government may burden religious exercise so long as the burden arises from a, quote, neutral law of general applicability, unquote. Under those circumstances, the government would no longer need to show that the regulation is narrowly tailored to further a compelling government interest. Okay, so this language matters. The language of neutral law of general applicability. This is what Ho is getting at. Ho is very respectful of original understanding and the text, not only of statute, but of, of the First Amendment and the interpretation of the First Amendment precedent. Okay, so you got Smith, remember, 1990, Indian, peyote, religious ceremony, denied unemployment benefits. Why? This is a neutral law of general applicability. You don't get your exemption. Yoder is the Amish parents, 1972. They got the exemption. Well, that was a neutral law of general applicability. Sherbert, before that, 1963, that was the South Carolina case where the Seventh-day Adventist got fired for not working on Saturdays, applied for unemployment benefits. Initially, she didn't get them. Goes all the way to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court says, no, you get them. There's an exemption here for you. Okay. Now, here's Judge Ho again. The reaction to Smith was unusually negative. The two other branches of government united in criticizing Smith as inconsistent with a proper understanding of the First Amendment. In 1993, Congress overwhelmingly passed the Religious Freedom Restoration Act by 97 to 3 in the Senate and a voice vote in the House. The act contained legislative findings expressly disavowing Smith, stating that governments should not substantially burden religious exercise without compelling justification. And that in uh, Employment Division versus Smith, the Supreme Court virtually eliminated the requirement that the government justify burdens on religious exercise imposed by laws neutral toward religion. The act avowed to, that's a Religious Freedom Restoration Act. The act, sometimes it's called RIFRA. The act, RIFRA, vowed to restore the compelling interest test as set forth in the Sherbert and Yoder cases and to guarantee its application in all cases where free exercise of religion is substantially burdened. President Clinton agreed. In signing RIFRA, he explained that this act reverses the Supreme Court's decision in Smith and reestablishes a standard that better protects all Americans of all faiths 
in the exercise of their religion in a way that I'm convinced is far more consistent with the intent of the founders of this nation than the Supreme Court decision, unquote. Quote, one of the reasons our founders worked so hard to get the First Amendment into the Bill of Rights, Bill of Rights, is they knew that religion helps to give our people the character without which our democracy cannot survive, unquote. Also from Bill Clinton. RIFRA does not govern this case, however. Uh, the Supreme Court has held that Congress did not have the power under Section 5 of the 14th Amendment to apply RIFRA to the states. You know, I, I feel like I have a problem with that, but I, I can't articulate it right now. In response to Flores, that's the case he just cited, the state of Texas has enacted a state version of RIFRA. Uh, Horvath presents no claim here. I wonder why he didn't do that. Um, I had a conversation with Horvath about this case. I called him up, talked to him for at length about this. I don't. I don't think we talked about that. I don't know why. The district court thus held that Horvath's claim is foreclosed by Smith. To quote, the requirement is not aimed at a specific religious practice. That is the requirement for the vaccine. You know, the whooping cough one that he didn't get the exemption for. They're saying it's it's not the, the district court that did summary judgment basically against Horvath says that the requirement is not aimed at a specific religious practice. Can I add here that, that Horvath got exemptions from the flu vaccine mandate. Those were not aimed at religious practice either. So go back to the district court. Here's Ho quoting the district court. The requirement is not aimed at a specific religious practice. It's an attempt to address concerns raised by transmitting infectious diseases by healthcare workers. The court thus concluded that the city's policy is, quote, neutral and generally applicable, unquote, under Smith. And why did he get the flu vaccine exemptions? is that the same language, it's exactly the same language. It's an attempt to address concerns raised by transmitting infectious diseases. The flu is an infectious disease by healthcare workers. Okay, he's a first responder. Okay, firefighters are healthcare workers under that definition. I disagree, says Judge Ho, with the district court's reliance on Smith and applaud the majority in the appeals court that's this court for declining to affirm based on Smith for it is far from clear that the city's vaccination policy is quote, a neutral law of general applicability, unquote. And if it is not, then the policy is subject to the strict standard employed in Sherbert and Yoder for even after Smith, 
quote, a law burdening religious practice that is not neutral or not of general applicable uh, application must undergo the most rigorous of scrutiny. You know, it makes me wonder what is general applicability mean? Is that, does that mean like criminal, criminal law? Um, because there's no exceptions in criminal law. Or what does it mean something else? I would therefore remand for further proceedings to determine whether the city policy is a neutral law of general applicability. And if not, whether the policy satisfies strict scrutiny, because the record appears to be disputed on both questions. That's all he needs right there. The record is disputed. In other words, the record was not developed at the district court. It should have been. You can't just decide without developing this, these questions and the answers to these questions. That's not proper. That's a clear error. They can reverse on clear error. To begin with, the record is unclear whether the city's TDAP policy, vaccine policy, provides exemptions for some while denying exemptions for people of faith like Horvath. The district court opinion indicates that the city does not offer such exemptions, citing the fire chief's own testimony. Council seemed less certain of this fact, however, when asked at oral argument. If the city does not per does permit exemptions to the vaccine policy, then the policy is not neutral or generally applicable. Remand would allow the parties parties to clarify the record on this point. Page seventy seven ninety nine here. In other words, um, Judge Ho isn't saying that that Horvath automatically wins. He's saying he has a chance. He, and he should be given that chance to develop the record in court. That's the whole point of having a trial. And you can't just foreclose it without allowing the record to be fleshed out because the precedent requires these questions to be raised and answered. And they were not uh, sufficiently done. So that's what he's saying. In addition... The record confirms that the city is apparently willing to grant exemptions in argu arguably analogous situations, such as under its flu vaccine policy. Yet for no reason, or at least none that is apparent from the record, the city denied the same request for a religious exemption on behalf of the same firefighter when it came to the D Tdap vaccine. Remand would give the city the opportunity to demonstrate either that the flu vaccine is somehow not analogous to the Tdap vaccine and that the vaccine policy is therefore neutral and generally applicable, or that has a compelling interest in insisting that Horvath take the Tdap vaccine, but not the flu vaccine, <laughs> which makes you wonder why they would have a requirement if it's not, there's no compelling interest. 
The majority offers an alternative basis for affirming the district court. Instead of relying on Smith, as the district court did, the majority holds that the city's policy does not substantially burden religion because the city offered Horvath the option of wearing a respirator instead of taking the vaccine. <laughs> so let's get into really quick. This is me. The uh, so-called reasonable accommodation um, that they offered Horvath. They offered him two choices. They offered him to wear a respirator during his shifts the whole time. In response to that, I think it was an N95. I want to I want to say it was an N95. I saw that in here somewhere. Um, Horvath thought that will actually impair his ability to do his job effectively. Nobody else is required to do that. Um, and it's counterproductive. And uh, what would be more reasonable is if he had to wear it maybe just when he's with certain immunocompromised um, individuals in certain circumstances, not the entire time. And they did not want to have any discussion about that whatsoever. So they, what they did was they offered that and then they ordered him to take it as, as uh, an accommodation. And then he was fired for not obeying the order. He was fired for, not for religious reasons, but for insubordination. <laughs> That's how they played that. Very uh, astute of the fire chief. The second accommodation that they offered him was to transfer him to another position as a code enforcement officer that had totally different hours, um, which would have, in effect, required him to give up a large part of his income from his small business construction company because the hours would conflict. Um, as a firefighter, he works 24 on, and and then he's got several days. So he could go do other jobs, um, and there's flexibility there. In other words, there's flexibility as a part of his package that was not taken into consideration when they uh, adopted a quote unquote reasonable alternative. And the reason the court said that it was reasonable uh, is because um, I don't think a code enforcement officer makes as much normally. And so they were just saying, you just make the same amount and we'll just call it, call it even, you know, winky, winky. Um, and that makes up for your getting a crappier schedule. Basically, I think it was like an eight to five kind of a schedule, which would, you know, that would basic because of the hours, he wouldn't be able to do these other jobs, these uh, construction, manage a construction team. So. All right. Um. But Horvath responds that the city's offer forces him to choose 
between sacrificing his faith or working under unequal conditions. Other firefighters are not required to wear respirators. And Horvath offered expert testimony that a respirator would impair his ability to do his job well. The right to free exercise means that government cannot force citizens to choose between one's faith and one's livelihood. I like the way he said that because livelihood is really the issue here with Horvath and his other job that he has, that he makes a lot of money in. I think he was making as much money in the other job as he was as a firefighter. So he was bringing, he was pulling down quite a bit. And basically, if he took the reasonable accommodation, so-called, he would lose half of his income. So that was reasonable for the fire chief in his in the fire chief's mind, but in the other party's mind, Brett Horvath, it wasn't reasonable. So the question is, what's reasonable? How do you determine what's reasonable? That's a real question. And uh, the the majority opinion simply answered it just based on precedent, which I thought was kind of lazy to me. Um, you just base it on precedent. Like, in a, there's one other situation where the lady got a crappier alternative and we called that reasonable. So therefore this is reasonable. Well, what if the prior case, yes, it's precedent, but what if it's a bad example? What if that should have never gone through in the first place? Okay. I'm speaking out loud here. So the right to free exercise means that the government cannot force citizens to choose between one's faith and one's livelihood, absent a compelling reason. In Sherbert, the state tried to force Adele Sherbert to uh, choose between following the precepts of her religion and forfeiting benefits and abandoning one of the precepts of her religion in order to accept work. The Supreme Court unequivocally rejected that proposition. I went all the way to the Supreme Court. Government imposition of such a choice puts the same kind of burden upon free exercise of religion as it would, as would a fine imposed against appellant for her Saturday worship. To condition the availability of benefits upon this appellant's willingness to violate a cardinal principle of her religious faith effectively penalizes the free exercise of her constitutional liberties. Those are quotes from Sherbert. The court has applied the same principle in the RIFRA context, holding that government substantially burdens religious liberty when it, quote, puts family-run businesses to the choice of violating their sincerely held religious beliefs or making all of their employees lose their existing health care plans, unquote, from Burwell versus Hobby Lobby. After all, it is predictable that the companies would face a competitive disadvantage in retaining and attracting skilled workers if forced to drop insurance coverage to vindicate their faith. 
that might be a good one to cover on the podcast. Hobby Lobby. Whether the respirator requirement similarly forces Horvath to make an untenable choice is at best a fact dispute that the parties can likewise address on remand. <clears throat> uh, in other words, observing it's not clear whether the respirator requirement burdens Horvath's religion. Well, you could develop that. I take no position on any of these record issues. They turn on fact disputes that the district court must determine in the first instance. I would simply hold the free exercise clause entitles Horvath to litigate those issues even under Smith. Roman numeral two. We're almost at 800 here. This is where he gets into qualified immunity. And I, I think this is important to cover the the issue of qualified immunity thinking that through would you like to think that through with me i know of no better person to help us right now at least right now than judge ho so here we go although i would remand horvath's free exercise claim against the city i agree we must affirm his free exercise claim against the fire chief uh, under the doctrine of qualified immunity. Now we're on page 800. Qualified immunity forecloses most suits for money damages from government officials. To overcome qualified immunity, Horvath must satisfy two prongs. The first prong should be uncontroversial on its face. Horvath cannot recover unless he first establishes a violation of his legal rights. But that is not enough to overcome qualified immunity. Horvath must also satisfy a second prong. The right must not only be established, but, quote, clearly established, unquote, at the time of the uh, defendant's alleged misconduct. The clearly established requirement is controversial because it lacks any basis in the text or original understanding of Section 1983. Nothing in the text of Section 1983 either is originally enacted in 1871 or as codified today supports the imposition of a, quote, clearly established, unquote, requirement. That's fascinating. That is really interesting. I have to chase that down. Section 1983 is the 42 U.S. Code. It's it's the... Um, it's the avenue in statute that allows for a suit when your constitutional rights are violated under color of law and they can't, you can't do that. <laughs> um, you, you, you can't, if the, if, what he's saying is if there is a right that you have and it's established basically saying the same thing. Um, in other words, the policy makers and government officials should know that you have that right because it's established. Then they can't provide a policy that uh, they can't uh, establish a policy or enact a policy 
and and engage in that under color of law when it violates your rights without being um opening themselves up to liability under 42 US code 1983 okay does that help i don't know if that makes any sense or not i ordinarily i would be able to answer your questions but um you know for example like um something that would be a money issue like you know maybe if there was an illegal search and seizure for example and it was not reasonable the text provides in the 14th, 4th amendment that that reasonable searches and seizures are allowed in certain circumstances okay unreasonable ones are not allowed well okay what counts as reasonable? What counts as unreasonable? So the clearly established language means that you have to clarify that and it's got to be well known to the policymakers and government and the government actors at the time that the dispute happens. All right. But Judge Ho is going after the clearly established language. He's like, um, this is too favorable to the government because what the government is always going to do is going to say it wasn't clearly as okay, maybe it was established, but it wasn't clearly established. You know, I mean, I, I don't know the fourth amendment as well, but like for 90% of police work is search and seizure, right? Let's just say it's a high percentage. I don't know what it is, but it's high percentage. Every time there's a stop, a traffic stop, it's a seizure, right? And sometimes it's a search, <laughs> depending. So what could possibly go wrong here? Do you have any rights not to be searched in your vehicle? Well, um, you know, if you're the defendant, you're going to claim everything, right? And if you're the police officer, you're going to claim everything, maybe initially. And so the courts work this out, you know, and then, okay, can you search occupants, not the driver? What can you search of the occupants? Can you search a purse? Like if you, can you order occupants out of the vehicle? Let's say you do and the lady leaves her purse and the purse is still in the vehicle. If she had the purse outside the vehicle, she would have actually more right not to have it searched than if it was left in the vehicle. <laughs> so, I mean, precedent, for example, gets into all these nitty gritty things. And so, you know, purse left in the vehicle, especially if it's like in a wing, if it's, if it's within reach of the driver, well, you know, that's uh that's more reasonable of a search than if she's got it on her person and, and um, she's outside of the vehicle at the time of the search. You know, there's like a person's body is, ha, has the greatest protection. Well, okay. The home, that's, that's the greatest protection. You have less protection in a car because you're out in public, you know, um, you have more protection in your 
on your body, on your clothing and stuff than you do in a car uh, for all sorts of reasons. So, I mean, you know, President would get into this and and the, the issue of clearly established. I'll give you an example of one that did not involve a vehicle from Brett Kavanaugh's time on the D.C. Circuit that he wrote. Actually, I didn't really like this case. I like Brett Kavanaugh, but I didn't really like how he handled this. Um, I think it was, I forget the guy's name, but okay. So we don't know the race of the individual, but he was walking and he was walking on the street and it was, I think it was late at night and it was, I think it was during the winter and this all matters. It was late at night. It was in the winter time and there had been a call of a robbery and the police were searching that neighborhood for someone on foot who bore certain description of, of the clothing. Okay. Now the reason I say it's winter time is because um, <clears throat> that matter, as far as how much clothing you have, that actually makes a difference, right? So in the winter time, it would make sense that you're wearing more clothing. You have multiple layers on right? And sometimes the layers have different colors. And so in this case, the person that they stopped who was walking had an outer garment on. He probably had multiple layers on. And see, this matters in terms of a reasonable search. So you'll see where I'm going in a second. So they stop him, even though he didn't have the same color that was reported uh, for his clothing, for his jacket, I think, or something. I forget exactly what it was. But they stopped him because they noticed that under his outer garment was the same color or could have been the same color. And so he could have just put a jacket on. Okay. All right. Now, is that a is that enough reason? Well, they stopped him. And under precedent, they can do what's called a Terry search, Terry versus Ohio, where they can do just a quick frisk of the outer garments in a very cursory fashion for obvious weapons for the protection of the law enforcement, because they don't have to, the famous quote is they don't have to, uh, it's not reasonable for the law enforcement to have to choose between their own safety and enforcing the law. Okay. So there were, they did that. They frisked him. They did the Terry frisk and they came up with nothing. And so they interviewed him briefly and then they, they seized him for the, for temporarily so that the witness could come and what's called a show up. And, uh, the witness drove up in the police car and from a distance said, that's not the guy. Okay. But, okay, this is where it's really interesting as far as reasonable versus unreasonable search is at that moment, the police officer was conducting a, a it was, it's not clear when exactly the second search happened. But okay, so the I think it was almost simultaneous. 
the witness is saying that's not the guy. Okay, ordinarily that would be the end of the seizure because the whole point of seizing him, the whole reason, reasonability, search and seizure would be to see if he's the guy, the same suspect, because he was in the area and he had, he fit, could have fit the description. He's not armed, but I forget what happened. Somehow the police officer did a second frisk. Okay. Where I think what happened was he was unzipped the outer garment and his, the zipper hit an object and the police officer immediately formed the opinion that that hard object was not a body part. <laughs> um, sorry. I, I don't mean to be, you know, I, what I mean is just commonsensically, it's, it feels like it's metal. He immediately believed it was a gun. Um, now, was he reasonable in that belief? He, he believed it might be a weapon. And so now, as soon as that happened, the whole thing changed, right? Because at the time, there, <laughs> this gets into the Second Amendment. This is why I didn't like the way Judge Kavanaugh dealt, dealt with it. But this was before Wren versus DC, which basically made it concealed carry a shall issue regime. But at that time, the police knew that very few people had concealed weapon permits. Now you couldn't make that assumption. You couldn't just make that assumption, but back then they could. And see, that's part of the reason why I don't like the May issue concealed carry because it gives the police too much discretion and they just assume you're up to no good just because you have a weapon for self-defense. And this guy had a weapon for self-defense. It was a dangerous neighborhood. And they didn't charge him with carrying a concealed weapon. That's not the charge that he got. He was, he, he had been convicted of another crime. So he was a felon, but he had served his time. He was out, but he violated the felon in possession law. That's what he violated. That's what they convicted him of. And, um, which I also have a problem with for nonviolent felons. But anyway, was that second search? I mean, just think about it. Seconds, uh, one second, two seconds. It's like, did you not hear the lady? She just said, it's not the guy. And he's saying it at the same time. You know, it's like right at the same time, you know, and that was enough to make it as for Judge Kavanaugh. It was a close call, but it was like, just kind of like preponderance of evidence kind of a thing. It was like, okay, you know, reasonable. So does that guy have a clearly established right not to be searched a second time? As soon as the lady is at the same time, the lady is saying that's not the guy. That was what the whole thing hinged on. <laughs> so um, that's an example. So, okay. So here's judge Ho. I know you're thinking you always can make it about the second amendment. I, you know, you're right. I love 
to me, I could talk about it all the time. And I, that, I have to force myself to go on these other things like religion and vaccines and stuff, public health versus private health. Okay. By contrast, Congress has expressed expressly adopted a clearly established requirement in other contexts. For example, in the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act of 1996, Congress imposed special burdens on habeas petitioners who seek relief from convictions. Um, that same statute requires habeas petitioners not only to establish a violation of law, but to identify, quote, clearly established federal law, federal law as determined by the Supreme Court of the United States, unquote. What, what Judge Ho is saying is that clearly established language, if, if it's supposed to be there, it should just be there, and it's not in 1983. It's in 2254, a 28 U.S. Code 2254D the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act of 1996. Okay, why, you know, the Qualified Immunity Doctrine imposes a similar clearly established standard in Section uh, 1983 cases, but without any corresponding textual basis. That is troubling because in other contexts, the Supreme Court has declined to read language into a statute if Congress explicitly included the same language in other statutes. Man, I like where he's going on this. In case you can't tell, this is a pro-individual rights move he's making. In other words, he's saying the government has too much power to stretch this clearly established, use it and abuse it to, to make qualified immunity more entrenched. And the more entrenched qualified immunity is, the more the government can do to people to violate their rights. Nor is there any other basis for imputing such a requirement to Congress, such as from the common law of 1871, or even from the early practice of section 1983 litigation. Okay. In sum, there's no textual or original basis to support clearly established requirement, section 1983. I'm on 801 now. One of the primary justifications for the clearly established requirement is that the fear of litigation not only deters bad conduct, but chills good conduct as well. That is valid. What he means by conduct on the part of government officials. So the, the whole point of having clearly, clearly established protects government officials who are doing good things. That's, that's the claim. Because otherwise people would be suing governments all the time and taxpayer money would be constantly being paid out to people who claimed that their rights were established, but not clearly established. And they were violated. Okay, that is valid, but I believe ultimately misplaced concern for if courts simply applied the first prong of the doctrine in a manner more consistent with the text and original understanding of the Constitution, we might find that the second prong is unnecessary to prevent chilling of good conduct as well as unwarranted by the text. Law enforcement officials and other public officials who engage in misconduct should be held accountable. Hear, 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 hear. 
Nothing is more corrosive to public confidence in our criminal justice system than the perception that there are two different legal standards. Public officials who violate the law without consequence only further fuel public cynicism and trust, distrust of our institutions of government. Hear, hear. But there is also concern that the fear of litigation chills public officials from lawfully carrying out their duties. There's the other side of it. After all, it cannot be disputed that seriously uh, disputed seriously that claims frequently run against the innocent as well as the guilty at a cost not only to the defendant officials but society as a whole because taxpayer money is being used to settle these claims. There is a danger that fear of being sued will dampen the ardor of all but the most resolute or the most irresistible uh, irresponsible public officials in the unflinching discharge of their duties. Much of the chilling problem, however, stems from misuse of the first prong of the doctrine. Simply put, courts find constitutional violations where they do not exist. For example, the Fourth Amendment does not prohibit reasonable efforts to protect law-abiding citizens from violent criminals. It only forbids unreasonable searches and seizures. As those words were understood at the time of the founding, the Fourth Amendment allows police officers to take steps necessary to apprehend and prevent felons from harming innocent cit citizens. <laughs> Courts often look to the common law in evaluating the reasonableness of the Fourth Amendment uh, for Fourth Amendment purposes of police activity. Drink of water. The common law allowed the use of whatever force was necessary to affect the arrest of a fleeing felon. That's from Blackstone. And although the court has not embraced full force of the common law, <laughs> to say the least, page 802, I mean, they let people burn down Seattle or parts of it, Wisconsin, Kenosha, Wisconsin, Minneapolis. because of something they saw on TV that they don't even understand, or YouTube. Although the court has not embraced the full force of the common law, it has recognized that the constitutionality of deadly force where an officer has probable cause to believe the suspect poses a significant threat of death or serious injury to the officers or others. The officer has probable cause. So if chilling police conduct is the concern, there is no need for an atextual, clearly established requirement. The Constitution should be enough if we get the substantive Fourth Amendment analysis right. Oh, that's a really good point. Our court's recent debates about qualified immunity illustrate this point. In Windsor versus Kaufman County, 2019, Fifth Circuit, no member of our court claimed that the officers violated, quote, clearly established law, unquote. We all agreed that the officers involved in the death of a suspected active shooter were entitled to qualified immunity under the second prong. Fortunately, the majority at least gets the second prong of the qualified immunity analysis right. <laughs> what divided us was the first prong, whether the we're almost done. 
plaintiff established a violation of the Fourth Amendment. Four members of our court dissented from the denial of rehearing on Bonk, writing that if we want to stop mass shootings, we should stop punishing police officers who put their lives on the line to prevent them, echoing the same chilling concerns previously expressed by the Supreme Court. And he's quoting himself there. I got to check that out. Hmm. That's another good, good one to check out. I'm making a note. But we did so under the first prong, not the second. Okay. That might be a good Fourth Amendment one to look at. Windsor versus Kaufman County, 2019. So too in Cole versus Carson, 2019, on Bonk. There, we again divided over whether the officers violated the Fourth Amendment, the first prong of the qualified immunity doctrine, in taking steps to prevent a distraught and armed teenager from shooting up a nearby school. Does the majority seriously believe that it is an unreasonable seizure, as those words were originally understood at the founding, for a police officer to stop an armed and mentally unstable teenager from shooting innocent officers, students, and teachers? <laughs> Once again, so long as the substantive analysis under the first prong is right, there is no need for the second prong. There is an additional reason why the fear of chilling public officials does not justify a, quote, clearly established, unquote, requirement unsupported by text. When it comes to the First Amendment, for example, we are concerned about government chilling the citizen, not the other way around. Hmm. That's a deep point. That is a deep point. When it comes to the Fourth Amendment, they're concerned about the chilling effect it has on police officers and other officials just doing their job. Chilling good conduct of the government. But he says, when it comes to the First Amendment, which is what this case is about, we are concerned about the government chilling the citizen, not the other way around. By the way, that's the same with the Second Amendment, FYI. Consider Sauce versus Bauer. That's in 2018. Two police officers acting on a noise complaint entered the home of Mary Ann Sauce. Fearful of the police presence, she asked if she could pray. This is U.S. Supreme Court. According to her complaint, the officers responded abusively and ordered her not to pray. The free exercise clause plainly protects the right to pray in one's own home. Yet two federal courts held that it was, quote, not clearly established, unquote, at the time of the violation and uh, of the violation and, and granted qualified immunity to the officers. I'm on page 803 now. 
it took summary reversal by the Supreme Court to get Marianne Sauce her day in court. My comment in the margin, wow. Wow. Point made, Judge Ho, point made on the clearly established language. Wow. Our court addressed a similar situation in Morgan versus Swanson, 2011 en banc. <clears throat> Two children wanted to hand out religiously themed candy canes and pencils to their classmates during Christmas, but the school principals stopped them. A majority of the court held that this conduct violated the First Amendment, the conduct by the government. But, but a different majority of the court held that the conduct did not violate, quote, clearly established, quote, law. <laughs> so this clearly established thing, got to handle, you got to get that under control, is what Judge Ho is saying. Because individual rights are, individual liberties at stake here. A similar justification for the clearly established requirement might be described as two wrongs make a right. <laughs> As the theory goes, courts too often impose liability on public officials under the first prong. So the second prong is needed to limit judicial adventurism. Um, okay. But that is a false choice, not to mention a troubling one. To avoid Windsor and Cole, those two, Windsor versus Coppin County, that's the active shooter one, Cole versus Carson. I haven't looked at that one clearly. That was the, well, actually that was a school shooting one. Okay. Those are two examples he, he gave. To avoid Windsor and Cole, Sauce and Morgan should not have to suffer. We can walk and chew gum at the same time. Courts can faithfully interpret the Fourth Amendment as well as Section 1983. We can get both prongs of the doctrine right. A principled originalist would fairly review decisions that favor plaintiffs as well as police officers. Smith does not foreclose Horvath's free exercise claim against the city, but qualified immunity requires us to affirm the judgment as to the fire chief. I would vacate the judgment as to the First Amendment claim against the city and remand to allow Horvath to proceed on that claim. I dissent in part for that reason. In all other respects, I concur in the judgment. Well, thanks for hanging with me on considering this case and the issues that it raises in terms of religious liberty versus public health vaccine mandates. And we got in a little bit about qualified immunity as well. So we'll chase down some of these other issues as we continue on the Republican Professor podcast. Good night.